0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts the heart of where innovation, money, and power
2: collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline
1: Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
3: I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
3: Coming up, full earnings coverage ahead as we break down results from Google, Microsoft, and Snap.
0: Plus, we'll preview what we can expect from Meta after the bell today. We get a little look at the Quest 3 headset.
3: And later in the hour, we will have a conversation with the CEO of Qualcomm as the chip firm unveils a new processor to take on the likes of Apple and Intel. But first, let's check in on these markets. And we're seeing my voice warming up as we start the show. The Nasdaq on the downside, end at the moment, we're up by 1.8%. This is as we see, of course, well, some numbers coming out. Google disappoints. and know you gonna get into the nitty gritty of the earnings that just sinks some of that, well, buoyancy that we've been seeing is some of the tech names of late. We're looking at big tech on the downside as yields push higher as well. This is actually your categorical sort of bear steepening going on at the moment we actually see the yields the long end of the curve the tens the thirties really selling off more yields up some eight nine basis points we've got a big five-year auction coming up we're down like 4.91 so not we're still not those highs ahead of five percent but still we're seeing some sell-off in the bond market i'm looking at bitcoin continuing to rally we're up three and a half percent but break down the individual micro moves at the moment ed
0: Yeah, I mean, we are in it. This is earnings and earnings matter again. Not just if you're an investor, but you get a good lens into the end markets, particularly in all kinds of consumer electronics and electronics broadly. That's why I look at Texas Instruments. Gave a revenue forecast, which suggests that actually those end markets are not recovering at the pace that we'd hope. Texas Instruments makes all kinds of semiconductors that go into all kinds of things. The big ones last night were Microsoft and Google. It was a tale of two clouds. Mega growth on the cloud side for Microsoft, powered by the hype around AI, but Google Cloud missed estimates. All its other segments beat, but Google Cloud missed, and we will get into that in just a moment. And as you said, after the bell, you then have Meta and Snap. It's interesting to look at how they trade in the structure of this week, because oftentimes Alphabet will report earnings first. That gives us a lens into the advertising industry, resilience and stability in search and YouTube, but there is concern in Snap and Meta, both down more than 2%. We will also get the hardware story of meta. How did Quest 3 go down on the mixed reality side? How much is it committed to spending on its metaverse vision alongside working in AI? So much going on, let's digest it all and bring in Daniel Newman, the Futurum Group CEO. And I think let's start on those kind of cloud names, the tale of two clouds. And I ask a simple question. Why can Microsoft Azure grow and corporate cloud grow, but Google Cloud Platform not grow in the same way?
4: Well, I think it's a bit of a tale of good and great. Right now, the market wants great. We know the macroeconomic environment is complicated, uh, with interest rates still very sticky. Uh, We know that inflation is still here, and people want blowout results if they're going to send those buy signals. I'm not as bearish on Google. I've looked at the technology, I've seen the adoption, I've talked to its customers, and 22% growth isn't terrible. The company missed by $20 million. Having said that, Microsoft returned to a faster pace of growth, and it wasn't just the faster pace of growth of Azure, Ed. But what I think it really was was the company's ability to explain how AI is driving revenue, how much Azure was being driven, three percent versus two percent, the thirty dollars ahead. The company's done a magnificent job of explaining its AI strategy and how AI is going to drive top line revenue. I just don't think Google's story was as compelling there, but I'm not as bearish on Google Cloud. There's so much cloud growth to come. And our forecasts at future, our intelligence forecasts
0: say, cloud is where it's going to happen. And I still think the, the, the war is on. Uh, Daniel, I spoke to Ruth Porat, who is now the president, chief investment officer, and CFO, and she gave me a very short answer. Customer cost optimization is what accounted for that cloud number. Um, What does that mean to your mind? Well, so right now,
4: as I I suggested, the macro is still complicated, and businesses are still sort of weighing invest and grow, um, maybe go a little bit slower. We know that the opportunity around AI is very bullish, and companies see productivity gains, they see the opportunities to create efficiencies, but we're also still hearing about companies laying people off. They're they're weighing how quickly can we make an investment in AI and how quickly can we see a return? And are we looking to 10X productivity through the investment in these capabilities? Or are we potentially looking to optimize and reduce our cost structures? And until we see a little bit more stability in the macro environment, I think companies are going to to, be a little bit more cautious. So this is where Microsoft kind of stood out and it looked across their portfolio. It wasn't the same. Like In Microsoft, everyone's just go, go, go. But I don't necessarily know that that's Hmm. true across the board.
3: Okay, interesting that you're saying still the macro picture is mixed. Drill into what really Microsoft was showing, that it's in the right markets at the right time?
4: I think they have told the story longer. They have their numbers and their metrics well-defined. We're talking about specifically being able to bear into what part of the business. I mean, you're talking about maybe a one to two percent, depending on the currency adjustment on a year over year growth basis. But it was faster growth than than Google, 22 versus upper 20s. And so everyone's saying, "Ooh, Google bad, Microsoft good. I actually think the weight went to the company being able to explain its Azure growth and the AI impact of it. 3% Three percent versus two percent, meaning more and more of the revenue in Azure is related to the company's AI. And then over the last quarter, it's been able to talk about its AI PC concepts. It's been able to talk about its thirty dollars per head for Copilot, five dollars per head for Bing Enterprise Search with Copilot. These capabilities. are are very easy for someone to plug into a spreadsheet and say, where's the growth gonna come from, the TAM expansion, and if Microsoft keeps going and getting their story out better, it puts all the other cloud players at a disadvantage. So that's why I said it's not a tale of good and bad, but it is a tale of okay, good, and great. And Microsoft did a great job of explaining their AI story.
3: You did a great job explaining it to us. We thank you, Daniel Newman of Futurum Group. Of course, all things Alphabet, Microsoft. Let's turn to Snap because, well, this is kind of a macro picture for us as well. And we're pleased to welcome Jasmine Emberg, Principal Analyst in Insider Intelligence. You lead coverage for social media, for creator economy. And, well, Snap actually managing to initially rally on the fact that its numbers looked better than expected. But is this fragile or is this showing actually a return to growth when it comes to marketeers?
5: Well, I look, the revenue growth in Q3 was certainly good news for investors and others who've been wondering whether Snap has what it takes to turn its ad business around. I think there are some worries and some concerns specifically around the impact of the Israel-Hamas war uh, on its ad business in Q4, which Snap itself warned about. Q4 tends to be uh, a quarter that is more heavily weighted towards brand advertising. Brands tend to be more risk averse, so it's possible that there will be some impact on it. But I think in three months from now, we also have to remember that Snap is on a good path. And if it can continue this momentum, it will end the year in a better place than where it began.
3: I'm interested as to where it's invested. We were just talking about how Microsoft got itself in the right place at the right time around AI. And Snap was really innovating in that space, but it didn't pay off. How are we seeing those innovations eventually looking to reap some reward?
5: Well, I think AI is where Snap needs to be innovating right now, and it's definitely made some moves in that direction. At the end of Q3, it shuttered its Ares uh, Ares, excuse me, its AR licensing division, um, which, when I saw the technology, was really promising. But I think with the focus being on AI right now, those investments were being becoming really difficult to maintain and to justify for the company.
0: So the big one after the bell is Meta, and you heard me say at the top of the program, Jasmine, that, you know, the shares are lower. I think folks look at Alphabet and think broadly about advertising, and then they think about Meta. But the Meta story got so complicated, Metaverse or no Metaverse, then AI, and then the bread and butter is ads. What are you expecting?
5: Well, in terms of the ad business, there is a lot to like about Meta right now. You know, it started its rebound already in Q2. And interne- internally, we're predicting more of the same uh, this quarter. I'll be looking to see more about Reels monetization, which we know is monetizing at a better rate right now. I'm also curious to hear more about the subscription service that it's uh, potentially rolling out in Europe, as well as Threads monetization. We've seen I mean, perhaps a little bit of an uptick in engagement on that platform. At least Meta is trying to drive more usage there so be curious to see how those things start playing out
0: all right jasmine emberg of insider intelligence great to have you on the program let's stick with meta its first truly mixed reality headset the quest 3 is available and the expectation is we'll be talking about it at earnings after the bell i got hands on check this out Meta's Quest 3, the latest mixed reality headset, is lighter and thinner than Quest 2 but with similar video game style wireless controllers. Launching apps and games is smoother with improved graphics. That's partly down to an updated processor, a second-generation Qualcomm Snapdragon XR2 chip. The $500 Quest 3 allows you to switch between augmented reality and virtual reality modes. You can play games, exercise, and explore virtual galaxies. Augmented reality is powered by dual-color pass-through cameras. This game Projects puffians you have to catch against the backdrop of the real world around you. The virtual worlds you can explore in the Quest 3 also have higher resolution. More games are coming. Meta's partnered with Microsoft to bring Xbox Cloud Gaming to the device in December. I also got quite a workout, boxing in full virtual reality. We also tested the latest Meta Smart Glasses, made in partnership with Ray-Ban. Meta's upgraded the tech with a 12-megapixel camera and five microphones. The glasses can take photos, record videos, video and start a live stream through voice control. A static LED light indicates a photo being taken. A flashing light means a video is being captured. The glasses also come equipped with Meta AI, the company's AI assistant. Hey Meta, take a photo. You can send content directly from the glasses to a friend via Messenger or WhatsApp and live stream video to Instagram or Facebook.
1: Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state
3: We've all been affected in it in one way or another. Families, friends, fertility treatments. They're often very expensive and in some areas actually inaccessible. That's why startups like Gaia, they aim to prioritize inclusivity for its customers. In fact, the company was launched in 2022 and it's raised already $23 million. It's also been featured on Bloomberg's UK's list of startups to watch. Can you tell us a little bit more? Alexia Arts, chief of staff over at Gaia. And can you just explain a little bit about the innovative model here? How are you enabling basically any partnership to be able to look at accessing IVF? Yeah, absolutely. So Guy was really born out of our
6: founder like experience with IVF, and he firsthand went through five IVF cycles, four failed rounds, and he just realized how broken the system really was. And the first thing he wanted to improve was access, because he saw the financial gamble that people take. You have to save up all this money up front in order to go through treatment. And so what we've done at Gaia is we've basically created the most affordable way to start and protect your treatment. So people will pay Gaia a small protection fee to start treatment, and then Gaia pays the clinics and takes care of the whole administrative burden that goes on you know, behind the scenes, like paying invoices and all of that, and the member just focuses on going through treatment, and they pay Gaia back in monthly installments if and when they have a child.
3: And if they don't have a child, they have nothing more to pay. So, But how do you take on that financial burden if, after desperately sad several rounds, they decide or they inevitably realise they can't have a child?
6: How does Gaia take on that pantomime? Yeah. yeah. so we actually have insurers who underwrite the risk for us, so we've built a model based on a you know, million data points from clinical data sets of all the IVF outcomes since the early 90s, and so we predict our members' chances of success over a certain number of rounds, and our underwriters take on that risk. Um, so.
1: How-
3: innovative was this story to be able to tell to VCs? How easy was it to convince and to raise money or not as the case may be?
6: So I think it was quite difficult and especially actually you know at first to convince the underwriters this is like a new model and so we feel very lucky to have been backed by three incredible underwriters who really understood and worked with us to build this product from the ground up Um, and we're also incredibly lucky to have VCs who really understand the space and you know didn't dismiss it as a more niche sort of you know women's health topic and really understood like how big and important the topic was and so we feel very lucky with
3: our backers, our underwriters and our VCs. And it's notable that, you know, might be labeled femtech but male founder and IVF problems are Absolutely. often male and female in many ways and I mean I, I'm sat here today because of IVF so this okay. is a long-term oh, right, nice. da- set of data points you can lean on. How easy or difficult was it to access that data? So you have to do
6: sort of an application with a research, you know, assistant who's helping us get access to it and we've done a huge amount of research, you know, looking into whether BMI affects it, whether you should have BMI cutoff points, age cutoff points, to really also increase access in that manner. And so um, you have to put an application to access it, and we we get data from our partner clinics and all anonymized, but we work hard to get data to make sure we're increasing access.
3: Is it all... British data. You're a UK-based company. Are you looking to go geographically wider?
6: Yeah, we're currently based in the UK, but definitely also operate in Spain and Greece because there's a lot of IVF tourism to these countries. And then we are looking to expand to more markets. So more news on that early next year.
3: And how different is it accessing different markets and different ways in which IVF is offered and, and functions and indeed access to data in different Geo- geographies?
6: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so in a lot of countries, you, you know, you have different funding by the state. Some countries are better than others. UK, like 65% of IVF cycles are paid out of pocket. US is another high private pay um, market. And so, you know, you do have to look at what exists in these markets before, before entering. Um, in terms of getting access to data, it's about like working with our partners, working with researchers. Um, the good thing about IVF is that it does have outcome data from since IVF started in the, you know, in the... Like 70s. 1978, yeah, exactly. So um, we do have all that outcome data that we
3: have access to and um, that, we can, that we can use in order to improve our models. I'm pretty sure AI is going to be being pretty useful as well. Alexia, yes. it's great to have some time with you. Thank you, Thank of course. You. Listen, featured on our startups to watch list here in the UK, Alexia Arts of Gaia. I'm now for Talking Tech. First up, the Chinese government calling its probe into Foxconn, quote, normal law enforcement. Chinese state media announced this weekend that government regulators are conducting tax audits and reviewing land use of Foxconn. Foxconn says it will work with authorities. Meanwhile, Japan is aiming to secure an additional $10 billion in subsidies for two semiconductor projects. More than half will be set aside for a second TSMC factory in southwestern Japan. The new factory is expected to make nanometer logic chips. Plus, Apple, well, it's set to revamp its TV app as part of an effort to become, well, a larger player in the streaming world. Changes include discontinuing apps on the Apple TV set-top box and let users buy and rent movies and shows. It will also remove the movie and TV show sections from the iTunes store app. And for more, let's dig into this scoop, one and only Mark Gurman. And there's plenty talked about across online at the moment today. Mark, just tell us a little bit about how they think these changes will help them compete.
7: Yeah, this is a pretty big upgrade coming to the TV app on the Apple TV. They're adding a new sidebar and a new interface that makes it look more like Netflix. Uh, the current TV app, if anyone has used it on the Apple TV, uh, is not very intuitive. The idea is to aggregate content from a number of sources, TV+, Plus, which, by the way, Apple announced this morning is getting a price increase from $7 a month to $10 a month. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that over the course of the day. It integrates from there, apps like ESPN, Amazon Prime, Live News. News, other live sports networks but it's a little confusing to navigate so this is designed to simplify it they're also going to be removing the iTunes movie and iTunes TV show apps from the Apple TV and from the iTunes store app on iOS the reason they're doing that is you can already buy that content in the TV app and they want to push anyone looking to watch video on their devices to the TV app obviously that's the center of their video strategy now that's where you can sign up for these subscriptions both Apple TV channel add-ons plus the now $10 a month TV Plus service.
0: You're right that we'll talk about it. The breaking news of the day is that Apple has raised prices, Mark, across basically all of its services. Where are the price increases and why, really?
7: Yeah, so going from 7 a month to 10 a month for Apple TV Plus, now over the past year they've doubled the price because they increased it from $5 to $7 a month October last year, so now $10 a month for Apple TV Plus. Apple Music, that price increased from $10 to $11 last year, that remains, but News Plus is going from $10 a month to $13 per month, and Apple Arcade is going from $5 a month to $7 a month. Now these increases come as they've expanded the content offerings in both Apple Arcade uh, as well as Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus is getting more shows uh, very frequently, there have been hits lately, obviously everyone has been talking about the Scorsese movie on there, Uh, Apple Arcade, they've doubled the amount of games they've had on there since they launched it at $5 a month in 2019. News Plus, they need more revenue to pay publishers more money, right? Publishers are even losing money, or not making so much money on News Plus. So hopefully publishers are now going to get an increased revenue share uh, because of this, rather than the money going into Apple's pocket. Uh, in terms of their other services, Apple One bundles, those went up quite significantly as well to incorporate those price increases, but Fitness Plus and iCloud stay the same.
0: Bloomberg's Mark Gurman and all things Apple, thank you. Also out across the Bloomberg universe, Ruin is the first documentary by Bloomberg Originals that dives into the collapse of FTX, as narrated by Bloomberg journalists and some of the central players in the rise of digital assets. Here's a sneak preview of the film. I don't think he even
8: had almost a conception at some point that it was wrong or right. I think he just had the mentality that he has to win.
7: It was almost like trying to explain like
8: Business Ethics 101
1: to a baby. Sam has basically become a villain in everyone's minds. This committee will not stop until we uncover the full truth
9: behind the collapse of FTX. Will this be the last of its kind? No, this is the nature of capitalism, get over it.
0: Joining us with more, Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, and my goodness, what a project to be involved in. Tell us about it.
10: Yeah, I mean, and, and it's it's continuing on. I mean, we we just learned uh, hours ago that we'll we'll get testimony from Sam Bankman-Fried in the trial. Um, you know, this is has been a year of just crazy news. A, a time in which um, Sam Bankman-Fried went from being you know seen as as one of the members of the establishment, you know, the one of the youngest billionaires ever, uh, to being potentially facing a, a life sentence. And we could uh, you know get a verdict um, as as early as next week, if not the week after. So so really a lot happening here in crypto and and a real reckoning uh, after you know years of of really serious growth.
3: And there was always sort of more and more extraordinary parts to this story, shocking anecdotes. What took you most out, by surprise, Max, when you were really deep diving into this making?
10: I mean, to me, the the most surprising thing here was just the way that Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, sort of talked his way into this amazing position, this position where he was in the room with famous venture capitalists and politicians and celebrities and Tom Brady and so on. And he essentially attempted the same strategy on the way down, right? We saw him uh, talking, giving the these kind of bizarre, meandering interviews um, in the, in the month, weeks and months after FTX had gone bankrupt. And again, I think we're going to see kind of a crescendo of that uh, when he takes the stand. Um, this is somebody who has you know, been able to, to wrap a lot of people around his finger and, and watching that all unravel, um, again,
0: staggering. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, thank you very much. And Ruin, Money, Ego, and Deception at FTX airs Wednesday at 8 p.m. New York time here on Bloomberg Television. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco.
3: And I'm Caroline Hyde, right here in London. And in fact, we want to be talking a little bit more about the world of the UK. VC in the UK. It's VC Spotlight. Just two months ago, Silicon Valley firm IVP, born in the 1980s, took oh, a leap across the pond, opening an office right here in London. Nearly 20 years after it first ever actually started investing in Europe as a sphere. IVP's Alex Lim joins us now to discuss what has been, well, a decided boots on ground mentality. Like, why did you decide, having already had some big hits, UI path, you've been in supercell, why did you need to be here to access European talent a bit more?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've uh, had some great successes in Europe over the years. We have been fortunate to be backers of companies like WISE and Supercell and UiPath. And that gives us increased confidence in the region that there will be more entrepreneurs that come up and build global businesses out of Europe. As it pertains to opening an office here in London, we want to be really close to the founders that we back. We often serve on the boards of the companies we uh, invest in, and so having that close relationship where we're just a time zone or a short flight away from the founders we work with is really important to our strategy. I
3: think also what's happening, the sense of being close. We're now though, are we ever hitting a tipping point where you think of some of the companies you've already backed that have shown exits, Mm -hmm. that have had liquidity events, that have therefore probably seen people leave the companies and start building their own. Are you seeing that flywheel of like you were at UiPath, but now you've decided to go and build your own new startup?
8: Absolutely. Uh, UiPath is spinning out a couple of great companies right now, which we're actively tracking. And I think there'll be more and more entrepreneurs, technical people that come out of these companies and decide that entrepreneurship is their next career, uh, career path. We travel all over over Europe. We've actually been, since opening the office in August, in eight different cities. So we're trying to find these entrepreneurs wherever they are. And they uh, they do come out of different places, not just the major tech hubs like Berlin, Paris, and London.
3: What's interesting is, today of all days, you're seeing one key fintech player listed in France, Worldline, Mm -hmm. absolutely pummeled, Mm -hmm. largely idiosyncratic, some of it, but also an economic perspective that Germany is about to hit recession. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting time to be wanting to plough into Europe at the moment. How has that economic macro backdrop affected some of the companies you're supporting?
8: We think a lot about the technology ecosystem and the markets that we serve and so you can think back to 2022, there was a reset in the equity markets for public technology stocks. That has affected uh, technology all across uh, across our region in Europe. Um, There is more and more uh, realisation that we might be entering a recessionary environment, so our entrepreneurs are starting to prepare for that. That said, a lot of our companies actually do well in recessionary environments. Mm. They are uh, increasing productivity for businesses or providing valuable services to consumers, so that we do think there are some counter-cyclical companies within our portfolio.
0: Alex, it's good to see you. Your business partner Eric was on the show with us in August when you announced you'd open a yeah. London office. The next day he jumped on a plane and moved his life to London. And um, I guess I want to know what you've been up to since. You know, what are that what is it like in London? Are there hackathons and mixers and drinks? And are you making friends with all of the people you've been working with long distance on, on rounds with?
8: Yeah. We're definitely getting out into the ecosystem. An important um, part of our business is to get out into the regions that we serve and meet the great founders, the great entrepreneurs, uh, and then also venture uh, venture backers. Each of these c- cities around Europe have uh, local seed investors that we love to partner with uh, because usually we're coming in as a second or third round of investment. Uh, so we're out there on planes making sure that we're face-to-face with those people, and it's uh, you know, definitely a huge priority for us. We're also have a, a large portfolio within Europe already. So we're traveling to these cities to go to board meetings. You're uh, going to Paris to see pigment, or to Germany to see DeepL. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons why we get out into the region, and I think that's a real yeah. positive for us.
0: Alex, is there the variety of technology in Europe that we have here in, in the Silicon Valley and the Bay Area across software, hardware, everything that's happening in AI? Mm-hmm. Do you have the same things yeah. to pick from?
8: Yeah. There's a huge huge variety and it's funny that in individual cities there are different areas of expertise. Obviously London with the uh, strong backing of financial services and great talent you have in that area. We back a lot of fintech companies here. So an example would be uh, Vault, which we backed earlier this year. They're a financial technology company working on uh, account-to-account payments or Cion, which is in the fraud verification space. But then you travel other places, and you see different pockets of talent one area that i 'm really excited about right now is Paris and France. They have such strong AI talent, and so we 're seeing more and more companies come out of that ecosystem that we 're trying to back
3: great universities, both UK France I mean Europe mm-hmm. more broad, broadly Alex though so you put a very sort of positive spin on it a macro environment that 's challenging, but founders that are able to be sort of counter cyclical already preparing mm-hmm. but we hear more and more that there are a load of unicorns or a load of high valuations that are going to have to recalibrate. Mm -hmm. Um, When is that reckoning going to happen? It feels like it keeps being pushed off and pushed off and special financing deals done in murkier corners.
8: One thing we uh, track very closely is the IPO market. Mm. That's a key barometer for the health of our business. Uh, IVP has had over 130 companies go public over its history. Uh, But 2022 and 2023, there have been less of those uh, offerings. You saw the recent offerings in Clavio, Instacart and Arm, extremely high quality companies going public and actually that's giving some confidence to the portfolio companies that we have and three or four of those companies are already starting to prepare their documents to go public in 2024. So I think you could see more companies going, uh, flipping from uh, private to public and that would be a great thing for venture overall.
3: ARM went public in America, much to the frustration of the London Stock Exchange. Will companies that you're backing, Pigment in France and the like, choose to go public in their own European markets, or will they always be attracted to American liquidity?
8: Uh, if a company is going public right now, I think the NASDAQ on the NICE is the right place to go public. They should. The markets are deeper there. There's a, more, a deeper understanding of technology and the value that technology can bring. However, we are hopeful and we want to be part of this change here in London that uh, you know, more and more companies will go public here in London and around Europe. It's great for the ecosystem. If you can keep the listings here, we'd love to see reforms that help that
3: few more deliveroos like I was chatting with Will Shue yesterday. Alex Lim, so great to have some time with you of IVP. Meanwhile, Ed, we've got some interesting conversation coming from you.
0: Yeah, let's go from London planet Earth to space. United Launch Alliance is on track, I'm told, to launch Vulcan in December. It's high energy rocket that it hopes can compete with Falcon Heavy, SpaceX's heavy launch system. Tori Bruno, who's the ULA CEO, visited us in New York and we talked about how reliant ULA has been on Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin. Have a listen.
9: Well, it took a little bit longer to develop this rocket engine. It is the largest engine of that fuel type to be successfully put together. And that just took a little while longer. Now that the engine is developed and qualified, we love it. Great performance. It's going to be an awesome workhorse for us. In terms of the Ukraine situation, we weren't really affected. That would have affected the retiring Atlas V with its RD-180 rocket engine but I had anticipated ahead of time, not that Ukraine would be invaded, but that the relationship with Russia was on a downward trend. And once our future was clear, I ordered ahead and received all of the RD-180s I would ever need to fly out Atlas. I have them in a warehouse in Alabama and have just been flying them as I need them.
0: Blue Origin is itself also going under some change, some transition to new leadership but the kind of constant is Jeff Bezos and I wondered what your relationship with Jeff is like
9: Oh, very constructive. You know, we're it's a teaming arrangement. You know, your major suppliers are always really your strategic partners. And that's especially true for us because our big suppliers invest in our rocket and in their product along with us. Jeff is no different. I was speaking to him just a few days ago as we were working together to help them ramp up their production rate for our eventual needs. And like I said, we love the engine, and I think we're gonna have a bright future together.
0: That's interesting. Do you find Jeff to kind of be hands-on? Is he somebody that you can phone and sort of talk at a high-level engineering basis with, or is he kind of more strategic in how he deals with you guys?
9: Well, I, I think he is a very strategic person, obviously. But I will tell you, he's a very good engineer, and he is not afraid to dive down into the details. You know, you might find it amusing that, you know, we nerds get together and we love to talk about propulsion technology. And I find Jeff very easy to discuss those issues with. He's fast, he picks them up, and he's a good teammate. He'll work with you to, you know, get through the technical challenges of doing this sort of innovative and and new work.
0: Talking Rockets was self-described nerd, Tori Bruno, ULA CEO, Caroline.
3: Ed. You are a self-described nerd, and I'm pretty sure that they'd welcome you with open arms in those conversations. You'd love to be in them, I'm sure. Meanwhile, let's get a check on these markets quickly, because nerding out on what's happening in public markets is not a particularly great day for the Nasdaq. We're off by 1.8% on big tech at the moment. You know why. It's all about an earnings concern. We're not quite living up to the hype when it comes to Alphabet, for example. Maybe that's dragging down the index more broadly. Five-year yield as well, probably putting paid to some of the risk exuberance as the yield's back up on the long end. Interesting in chips, we're going to be having a deep dive on chips that you're going to talk us through in a minute ed or by three percent on the socks as we see ti texas instruments not living up to expectations on earnings move on to some of the individual movers because interesting takes microsoft of course does do well on its earnings and microsoft outperforms but i've also been looking at what's in the world of paypal and and overall look at what happened to this european fintech player worldline off by 59 percent as they call out a recession over in germany ed
0: yeah, we are going to be talking chips. Coming up on the show, we're going to speak to the CEO of Qualcomm, Cristiano Amon. As the company unveils its Super Dragon X processor, this is a week about PC CPUs. This is Bloomberg Technology.
3: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop.
0: Welcome to our Bloomberg TV and radio audience worldwide. Qualcomm is stepping up its efforts to break into the personal computer market by unveiling a new laptop processor designed to outperform rival products from Intel and Apple. Joining us to discuss the new Snapdragon X is Cristiano Amon, Qualcomm CEO. And you join us from Maui at the Snapdragon Summit, Cristiano The question that I hear over and over again, be it from your investors, or be it from the millions of Snapdragon users and fans around the world, is how is this fundamentally going to change the operation and functioning of a personal computer?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, that's that's the reason we're very uh, excited about what we're doing. And I think the endorsement we got from Microsoft, I think the, the presence of Microsoft in our event as well. We have been working to build the next generation computing device for the Windows ecosystem. And it comes with where we see the conversions between the mobile and the PC. It comes at a time that users want more mobility and more performance, and the whole experience becomes an AI experience. And I think that's what we did with the Snapdragon X uh, Elite announcement. Uh, First of all, we're incredibly proud uh, and especially as we've been talking that Qualcomm is changing from a communications company to a connected processor company. We just unveiled the fastest CPU of any mobile computing device, of any laptop in the world. Fastest CPU uh, in terms of performance. We have the device here, people would test it, that's going to allow for you to have a lot more. Uh, performance for a day applications but also to have a lot of yes. AI on the device. Cristiano,
0: we, we were submitted dozens of questions from our audience including Snapdragon insiders on Discord for example and actually a, a reoccurring question was how the latest generation CPU can handle specific AI functions like Microsoft Copilot for example on device. Can you give us any insight there?
2: Absolutely. So what is what is interesting about what we've done with this processor, not only has the fastest CPU for your everyday tasks and gaming and all of those things, but it has a separate engine, and that is a unique differentiation from Qualcomm. It's, it's called the NPU, and it's about al- allowing your AI to run pervasively and always running on the device. So the co-pilot will be always running on the device to assist you with every task. In the NPU, it's the is the biggest that you can, in performance, you can find on the device. Just as an example, we can run large models of 13 billion parameters natively on the device. And we show that we have been partnered with all the major ecosystem investing on AI from Microsoft to Meta to Google and many other companies in having all of those models running natively on the device.
3: It's a fascinating moment in terms of competition, Cristiano, as well. It was but a couple of days ago, reports that NVIDIA is going to be challenging the space as well with its own ARM-based processors for PCs. You've got Apple, of course, showing its prowess in the area. How do you set yourself apart from what is going to be a real rush to the PC area?
2: I actually think the announcements that happen, especially the NVIDIA announcement, is one of the best things that could have happened for our efforts in the PC. We have been talking for a while, since we embarked on this journey with Microsoft, that the PC market is moving to an ARM compatible away from the x86 into an ARM compatible instruction set. The NVIDIA announcement is the validation that that is the new market and that is the new TAM for Qualcomm. It comes at a perfect time that we have been diversifying the company and looking for new opportunities and end markets for technology. And uh, we had started on this journey uh, for at least the past uh, three to four years, I think 24, with the new Windows AI. Windows AI, that comes to fruition. It starts to be at the end of... The 2024 uh, material for Qualcomm. So we're really excited about that, and I we look at all those announcement and endorsement that this whole PC ecosystem mm. is moving to them. And we just developed the fastest ARM CPU in the world.
3: We've got well announced potentially as soon as next week with Apple M3. When you've got a competitive but a validated space, as you seem to be articulating, what volumes do you anticipate in year one, for example?
2: Well, we're not making uh, projections. I think we have been very careful, especially because we have. This is a new market for us. We're think of us as a new entrant, and uh, if you look at the of the size of this market, I think uh, even if we get you know a smaller share, it's a significant uh, growth opportunity for Qualcomm, and we're excited about what we have developed. The part is competitive, and one thing I, we haven't mentioned about it, besides the performance, the power, which is our DNA of making very power-efficient devices for battery life is incredible. We exceeded the performance of the fastest CPU you can get from Intel for gaming, but we do it at 70% less power, as an example.
0: For our Bloomberg television and radio audiences worldwide, we're joined by Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon from the Snapdragon Conference in Maui. You just mentioned power, the claim is that it's about 68% less power than than the comparable Intel processor. A really fair question is the price premium, though, that your latest chip has. A lot of questions from uh, global end market users was like, well, how much am I gonna have to pay over the nose to have access to a consumer electronics device that carries Snapdragon X relative to mid and lower tier smartphone
2: or PC? I'm going to answer that question two ways. The first one is we're going to enable with this product for you to have a thin and light laptop that you can have the performance that you would find otherwise on a high-end gaming device. So I think if anything, we're going to be democratizing technology and make that an AI running on device available to more people. And that's easy to understand given mobile heritage. The other part of that is actually we look at the Snapdragon Elite X as a premium uh, Snapdragon solution, which improves dramatically our mix and it has great financial contribution as we look at the margin of those products. So I think it's a win-win for both sides.
0: One thing that you guys do really well is is look at Snapdragon and this kind of fan base you have. You know, everyone has raved about the H100 GPU from NVIDIA all year, but I've noticed this kind of deep Reddit forum discussion, Discord channels dedicated to Snapdragon. How much do you take into account the feedback from those community and your development of the product and what it can actually do?
2: A lot. I think we one of the things we do well um, is we have been nurturing this community. By the way, the, both of you should be a Snapdragon insider, so you may be missing out. And uh, we've been nurturing this community. It's growing very fast. It's, uh, it's over 14 million, and those are tech enthusiasts, and they really love the technology. They're advanced users, and they give us a lot of insights, and we really like that relationship.
3: Ultimately, I mean, I remember when we were first coming and sitting down with you a couple of years ago, it was all about supply chain issues when it came to chips and how you navigated that. Is there any sort of concern when you're thinking about unleashing these new, more powerful PC processors?
2: No, the supply chain, I think, uh, uh, crisis we had in the semiconductor industry is behind us. And uh, I, we, we actually look at, uh, at into the future as the most exciting thing now is how AI is developing on device outside the data center. And it's going to touch phones, it's going to touch PCs, it's going to touch cars. And we're looking, maybe we have an opportunity to create a whole new cycle in the phone business and uh, generate growth in the phone business as well with AI.
0: Cristiano, I want to be sort of reflective for a minute. You and many of your peers have tried to bring ARM-based CPUs to PCs for a decade. And fundamentally, the personal computer has not changed for a decade. The ecosystem around x786, for example, massive. It's been tried, tested. Why now? Why is this going to be any different from what you've tried in the last 10
2: years? Okay, let me let me bring you a different perspective because there's a number of different factors that are changing the PC. And by the way, I you know, I think we need to get we need to say Apple did a very good job when they developed the M-series and creating a a PC that's based on a mobile SOC architecture and uh, and that's one of the things that we have been working to do the same and create the best possible performance next-generation PC for the Windows ecosystem. But the reason this is different, first of all I'm talking to you right now via my PC and uh, PC became a communication device. we, we, we took working uh, to, with mobility to the next level. And then the biggest piece is the fact that AI is changing the user experience. If you think about Microsoft's doing a Copilot, even what Microsoft said about the, the price of the co-pilot, which I actually think is inexpensive if you think about the productivity increases they can do uh, for many enterprises, that is changing. It's gonna be a different type of device and that's what we're working on and that's gonna be a bright new feature. We're gonna bring uh, a lot of excitement and hopefully a new upgrade cycle for PCs.
0: Qualcomm CEO, Cristiano Amon from Snapdragon in Maui. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Caroline, you know, he's trying to outline a world where we're using a generative AI tool on our phone or PC, even in airplane mode. And you and I play with all these tools, ChatGPT, BARD, on our desktops, right? And a stable internet. It's hard to imagine though.
3: Yeah it is and ultimately many have been wondering when Apple really gets into the sphere of AI that little bit more much of it has been questioned about of course the privacy angle the fact that you do want it within your actual device and how much this is also intertwined with I just think about sitting down with the arm CEO around the IPO the listing and was all about moving into the world of PCs the fact that they are diversifying it's not just about smartphone anymore Ed.
0: Yeah, and as a self-described nerd, I've learned so much this year about specific CPUs, and I know our audience have so many questions that we got to there.
3: I'm glad that you were, maybe on this occasion, not going to have to do some weightlifting with them as well, as you did with the NVIDIA one. Meanwhile, well, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology, bye from London.
0: Check out the podcast wherever you get yours. This is Bloomberg Technology.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street,
3: top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei of Stanford, and many more. More
5: details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.